Hi, uh, this is uh, something of a deviation for me. I, uh, I usually um, find something in the garden that uh, tugs my chain and uh, puts me into a state of apoplectic rage. And about an hour after that, I can do a podcast on it when I've calmed down. But, uh, but the, uh, the Glasgow Herald um, is covering more and more constitutional stories um, because of the threat of this independence referendum. Nicola Sturgeon wants a, a referendum in 2023 and it seems as if there's going to be an advisory poll at the very least because of course there's nothing stopping the Scottish Parliament um, holding a, a poll which I presume unionists will boycott. So there's uh, more and more uh, constitutional politics in the, uh, in the Herald and other uh, Scottish newspapers now that the Covid crisis seems slightly less pressing. So, uh, so Today, Rebecca McQuillan, a Herald journalist, is uh, commenting on a Gordon Brown uh, pitch for the Union. Brown was the heavy hitter, which a lot, of, uh, who a lot of people um, thought had uh, had saved the Union back in 2014, because he persuaded enough Labour voters who'd, in many cases, had gone over to the SNP. That's the SNP's vote, essentially. It's uh, it's the, the old Labour vote, or a large part of it. But the Brown in 2014, the uh, former Labour Prime Minister and Chancellor, was credited with doing a lot to pull the fat from the fire um, that uh, David Cameron and others had casually um, risked. Um, so, so Brown is uh, the head and founder, I think, of a new think tank, Our Scottish Future, a pro-union think tank. And uh, so he's on a mission to try and uh, save the United Kingdom from uh, dissolution by, in this case, persuading people that there's less that divides Scotland and England in terms of fundamental values than folk think. That one of the standard uh, separatist or SNP uh, tropes is that we're a very different country with very different values. Now I've, I've known for 25-30 years that that's not true. I remember teaching modern studies a quarter of a century ago and uh, looking at the data. And when you do social science surveys you know you find out that there's very little difference in the, in the values uh, that people express um, between Scotland and England and other parts of the United Kingdom. One of the things that occurred to me when I was reading the article was that I don't know if, uh, and I think not, uh, I don't know whether they actually surveyed other countries using the same questions to find out whether there was a big divergence within the UK compared to the overall divergence between similar uh, societies across the Western world, or indeed the whole world for all I know. So it might be an actual fact there is significant difference between um, Scotland and England um, because the difference between, for example, the UK and France and Germany might be very small by comparison. I don't know whether they've checked that, but it, it occurred to me as a, a social science graduate when I was reading it that, uh, that that might be true. But the survey questions concern things like liberty and equality and immigration and redistribution, these core issues that uh, drive the demand for independence. And uh, what the evidence shows is what it has always showed, which the, the Scots are moderately, mildly, marginally more progressive um, in the views they express. They're slightly more in favour of redistribution than people in England. Um, they've got uh, a slightly greater tolerance for immigration than people in England. That's standardly what you find. Uh, but uh, the thing that's striking isn't the differences, it's the similarity. And Brown thinks if people were aware of how similar their views are to those of people other parts of the United Kingdom, there'd be less of a demand for independence because there wouldn't be any purpose behind independence. All you would be doing is creating a new country with a whole range of new problems 
uh, and the people of that country have fundamentally got the same views as the people of the country they've just left. And therefore what you would find is that those divisions in the society would express themselves in the politics, albeit in a smaller country. Um, and it would make it would it would be a, a change that hadn't changed anything. It would be like uh, um, dividing up a pizza uh, using different size slices. You're left with the same amount of pizza. It would be an initiative that lacked any um, purpose because there's nothing fundamental uh, driving it. You know, in in order to explain why, you know, the, the South has to leave the Federal Union in the United States, it has to be the case that the South is agricultural and slave owning and the North is industrial uh, and anti-slavery, uh, and therefore you have a civil war and you end up marching through Georgia. So there has to be something fundamental driving Scottish independence in terms of these values, or something else similar, like, for example, a lake of oil that you think you might own. Um, but there has to be something fundamental underpinning it, or you end up just reproducing the social and political differences that existed in the UK when you left it. So. The, the, now, the obvious rejoinder, which McQuillan notes, is what about things like the poll tax and Brexit and the, the rise of Boris Johnson as a new kind of sprawling Tory, Tory leader who, um, uh, some people have said, leaves the Labour Party with nowhere to, to run because the, the, he's all things to all people. Um, he's managed to get a Chancellor who's prepared to underwrite £400 billion uh, pounds worth of borrowing and a, and a debt pile we've never seen before. And now, of course, um, a a system of taxation which is the heaviest, I think, I think, since the Second World War, um, and for reasons that are difficult to explain to folk, is in actual fact quite regressive, because what's going to happen is it's going to be younger people who are going to be paid national insurance, which is a highly regressive tax that hits very low earners, and it's going to be used to supposedly prevent uh, people uh, spending more than 80000 on their social care. So as, as Ian McQuarter, I think, pointed out in the Herald, what we're looking at here is a tax on the poorest workers in order to prevent people with very rich, very big houses, expensive houses in the southeast, having to pay more than 80 grand for their care. So it's uh, so the, the Johnson government is, a, is an odd beast and hard to actually, as Keir Starmer is finding out, hard to attack and hard to pin down. So if you look at the actual SNP uh, desire for independence and you look at the Brexit policy that they usually cite, has given rocket boosters to that desire. The two policies are remarkably similar. In both cases, what you've got is uh, a belief that uh, an overarching organisation is pernicious. So the, the UK, the English in particular, but the UK generally, uh, marginally but generally, thought that the EU was a pernicious overarching organisation. And the SNP's pitch, and more broadly the pitch of the separatist parties, including the Greens obviously, is that the UK is similarly pernicious so it, it is interesting that the SNP and the hard right of the Tory party and UKIP and Brexit uh, party are, are actually on the same page when it comes to this idea that they're being done down and done wrong by a political uh, entity above them that doesn't have their interests at heart or is so incompetent and out of touch that can he govern well. Now, Brown's argument is that in actual fact, the ultra-unionism of the Johnson government um, the, the little Englander, if you like, uh, unionism, and also uh, Scottish independence. Um, these are both movements that are dis disconnected from the real underlying reality. The, the peoples are drifting together. Um, the, the underlying attitudes are vastly more similar than the um, politics that supposedly represents those, those attitudes and values. 
So the uh, the, the parties um, are different, um, at least in their expressed beliefs, but the people are actually drifting together. The country's becoming more similar over time, he thinks. What is different is the impact of the, the, the sovereignty of parliament argument in England um, and how that uh, facilitated Brexit. So there was always an element uh, in England, particularly in the Tory party, that was romantically attached to a, a view of the parliament that was established in the 17th century when we cut a king's head off. Um, and that, that sovereignty of parliament, that idea that a, a, a Westminster parliament, a Westminster government um, can do anything, it is the, the mighty Hobbesian Leviathan. 40 years ago or 35 years ago when I was a student, um, lecturers would routinely say that uh, parliament can do anything except turn a man into a woman. Not the kind of expression you would use today uh, if you were wise. But uh, the, the right-wing press and the uh, right of the Tory party um, played into that sentiment, that belief that there's something special about Westminster sovereignty and, uh, and successfully therefore engineered Brexit. What's forgotten, of course, is that the difference between um, the, the two countries uh, was 15%. 15% more voted for Brexit um, in England than did in Scotland. So we, we underestimate just how many Scots were in favour of Brexit as well. We also underestimate just how many people in the SNP are very hostile to the EU. We forget that um, there's a huge element in the, the independence movement, uh, including, I think, Alec uh, Neil, um, who my pals pally with and used to be his constituency M M MSP. Um, th there's a huge element in the in the independence uh, movement that is very hostile to the EU. And people forget the SNP was massively hostile um, to the to the EU. Um, and uh, the uh, the fishing industry, obviously, but others as well. People on the, on the left of the the independence movement see the, the EU as a, a kind of capitalist club in, in, the, in the old Labour expression. This, uh, the, I read an interesting article recently actually about the, um, the degree to which Central Europe has seen its most um, productive population move to Western Europe and, uh, and be highly effective and relatively low-cost workers for enterprises. And on one calculation, they've they might have lost 400 billion, I think it was, of, of human capital in return for probably a net 10 billion in various forms of subsidies for roads and similar things. So the, there's, there's an element in the, in the separatist movement that sees the EU as a capitalist club, uh, and that's often underestimated. So the, uh, the real distinctions that exist uh, among the voting uh, public, John Curtis uh, says this, the, the real distinctions that exist are completely obliterated by the constitutional questions. So the, the SNP garners votes from people who, if they were forced to make a more nuanced uh, decision about who they would support and which policies would support, would in actual fact not support the, the SNP. Um, and, uh, and that, as I say, misleads us as to the real differences that exist, because the real differences are small, but the um, resulting uh, political party balance that... Uh, that follows on from the, the constitutional question misleads us. We think that um, that Scotland and England are miles apart in terms of what the people believe, but that's because what we believe, the people's belief, um, is inferred from what we see in the parliamentary results. We see 56 SNP MPs heading down south in 2015, and we think that's truly remarkable, uh, given that the Tories, I think, got 331 MPs and formed a government. 
So we, we see that and we think there's a massive difference. But in actual fact, as John Curtis, the polling expert at Strathclyde Uni, as he says, the constitutional uh, argument obliterates the actual similarity that exists in, in political attitudes. And of course, what we also forget is um, that in 2019, there was no devolved English Parliament. So the, the election result uh, with the massive 80 seat majority, uh, the first proper majority that a Tory uh, government has won since uh, 2000, uh, two, since, I'm confusing myself, since um, 1987, because May just squeaked home and then quickly lost his majority. So this this Johnson's success in 2019 um, was very significant but what we forget of course is there's no devolved english parliament so what the english were faced with in 2019 was a choice between jeremy corbyn and boris johnson and that, that's not a choice that uh, is going to make it too difficult for most um centrist centrist voters corbyn did better than people think if you look at the actual share of the vote but he lost in all the key places he found it completely impossible to appeal to marginal voters he uh, he demonstrated again what we've known for a long time which is there's a very small number of voters who matter and they are swing voters in marginal constituencies. At one point, they thought that perhaps only 800,000 people in Britain had proper votes because these were people who were marginal voters themselves living in marginal constituencies. And Corbyn um, got the Labour Party hammered in 2019 by uh, appealing st strongly to hardcore Labour voters and to absolutely nobody else. So he lost all those seats in places like Yorkshire and Humberside, the so-called Red Wall across the country, because he absolutely alienated uh, the, the classic um, swing voters in these areas. So, But in 2019, uh, it was a choice between get Brexit done and put an end to uh, three years of parliamentary shenanigans and second votes and people's votes and Gina Miller and all of that, um, or alternatively, um, vote for a Labour Party which couldn't even make up its mind where it stood on, on leaving the EU, continually proposing you know, various things about the single market or the internal market and the customs union. Can't make its mind up about Theresa May's deal. By the end of the day, of course, I bet they wish they'd voted for Theresa May's deal. So the, the 2019 result, again, is a misleading result. It makes us think that England's much more different from Scotland than it really is, because the 2019 result was a product of a, an unelectable Labour Party uh, running a dreadful campaign that was guaranteed to alienate the places where you had to win uh, because Corbyn doesn't understand um, how Middle England views his kind of pseudo-Marxist policies. Um, and also as well, the, the three years of parliamentary shenanigans resulting in people like Amber Rudd being completely, un, and Dominic Grieve, being completely unacceptable to mainstream conservative opinion and getting themselves, I think, deselected and kicked out of the party. I think Johnson decided that the things that were said by Rudd and Grieve were just unforgivable and there was no way back for them. So the that whole debate, um, as I say, is, is, is too binary to allow us to see where the real um, social and political attitudes are. So the independence debate and the Brexit debate don't actually represent um, anything when it comes to welfare, taxation, um, and, and, and other similar uh, domestic things, funding the NHS, the care crisis, and so on. Now, McQuillan suggests that Johnson has done something unwise when it comes to his cabinet appointments this last week. Um, bring it, was it Nadine Doris, I think, he actually managed to appoint as um, culture secretary, I think, um, although I'm not 100% certain. But I think there were some very odd appointments, and he kept Pretty Patel uh, and her jet ski uh, trying to turn back uh, people crossing the channel um, in rubber boats. 
so the the, the new anti-woke cabinet um, is is seen to be a, a provocation to the uh, to the SNP, who have of course taken the Greens into government and are seen to be very socially liberal and progressive. And then of course there's the other issue about spending over the top of the devolved administrations. Uh, Michael Gove, of course, is the key minister here, and. Uh, this, uh, thinks McQuillan, plays into the SNP's narrative about devolution being disrespected because if you if you spend money over the head of the uh, Hollywood Assembly uh, and stick a, a union flag on it, you're doing something which is lawful because the, the, the devolved settlement doesn't preclude Westminster doing anything. Um, even when it comes to legislation, they, they merely suggest... The legislation says they will not ordinarily legislate, but there's nothing preventing them legislating even on devolved areas. I've never entirely been certain what the legal position would then be if there was two pieces of legislation um, which contradicted each other, uh, both of which had been passed through a, a parliament that had competence, because the uh, the, the Westminster Parliament um, is sovereign. Uh, but nevertheless, on health, education and law and order, Hollywood can legislate. Uh, so that I've, I've never been entirely certain what happens if the legislation conflicts. I don't think it can simply be a question of priority and time. I don't think it's the more recent legislation. I suspect that if there's a conflict, um, then the courts would uphold the primacy of the Westminster legislation, which, of course, would cause a massive constitutional uh, eruption. So the, uh, the, the, the present shenanigans um, between Scotland and England aren't a guide to um, the underlying reality. And what they do, thinks McQuillan, is they prevent us discussing even independence properly because we've become two tribes. Um, and uh, what we have to do is decide, thinks McQuillan, whether we're prepared to throw uh, the possibility or even the, the likelihood of Tory governments in Westminster as a price to be paid for remaining in union with a really important neighbour who, in point of fact, shares our values. Um, and uh, that, that hard decision um, is one that we're going to have to make at some point and uh, arguably because of the way the uh, the ordinary politics uh, interferes with the consideration of that fundamental issue we could end up making a bad decision there was a there's a comedian who his stage name was um i think kevin bloody wilson my great-grandfather was a wilson funny enough but anyway um there was a, a comedian um kevin bloody wilson and uh he told a funny story about why he used that name, which was that other kids would go home and parents would say, who were you with? Who was with you? Who, who else was involved? And uh, the kid would, would, of course, say, Kevin Wilson. And, uh, of course, the parent would then say, Kevin Wilson. Kevin bloody Wilson. Um, so, my reaction to Gordon Brown um, is a bit like that. Gordon Brown. Gordon bloody Brown. Um, Gordon Brown is an unusual character. Um, one of my former colleagues in 1996 <laughs> said to me, uh, no, it must have been after that because Brown had just got married, I think, and had kids. Uh, and, I, and I was uh, virulently opposed to the institution of marriage. And... Uh, one of my former colleagues said, uh, he said, I could see you doing the Gordon Brown thing, you know, uh, having kids late. That's not happened, and it doesn't look as if it's going to, but, uh, but he saw a certain similarity in the, uh, in the awkwardness and the, uh, the, the cussed determination 
to not readily accommodate uh, social norms. He saw a certain, a certain similarity there. Gordon Brown went to a school for exceptionally clever kids and he played rugby. He's a huge bloke. Um, I saw him when he opened uh, the college where he used to work. He's massive and uh, he played rugby and football and ended up with detached retinas in his eyes and the operation was botched. So he's got very poor vision in one eye and not great vision in the other. So he went to a school for kids with exceptionally high scores and psychometric tests. And I think he has spoken against that kind of education because whereas he had, you know, the 160 points of IQ that allowed him to flourish in that school, pals who had scraped in and were then struggling um, went through hell <coughs> trying to keep up with the curriculum. So he went to a highly selective experimental school um, and he then ended up lying flat on his back with uh, the kind of problems that you wouldn't wish in anybody. <coughs> the Hamza Yusuf fell off that scooter, of course, uh, the last few days, and uh, he's already got a ruptured Achilles tendon, and I can't abide the guy, but I really would not have wished that on anybody. Um, the, uh, the, a ruptured Achilles tendon is a terrible thing. Detached retinas in both eyes when you're a schoolboy is a hundred times worse. So, so Brown is exceptionally clever, um, but he's, a, he's an odd character, and it's not difficult to work out what might have done something to make him an odd character. Uh, I think most of us would have been a bit odd at the end of what he went through. One of my former colleagues was actually taught by Brown, and he says, he tells me, um, Brown, I think, was working as a part-time tutor um, when he was a postgraduate student himself, and, uh, and Brown was, again, a slightly odd character. Highly able, but very reserved, very gruff, never smiling, very formulaic, you know, highly demanding in terms of what he wanted done. So, when New Labour was invented in 1994 um, it was a Brown Blair project with Mandelson and Campbell and others playing uh, auxiliary roles. And uh, the supposed dinner in Granita that resulted in Blair being the key player and Brown uh, being the, the, the Chancellor, um, that, again, arguably did not sit well with Gordon Brown, who saw himself as the more intelligent, the higher achieving, uh, the more serious figure in the partnership. So the New Labour project began with Brown um, as this um, very powerful figure in the cabinet. I, I always characterise it as essentially Tony Blair being his own foreign secretary, being the, the kind of wartime prime minister, Winston Churchill, and, and Brown being Clement Attlee, um, Brown being in control of all domestic policy. And there's a lot of evidence for that. You know, he got um, Frank Field sacked. Um, he got uh, foundation hospital legislation changed to suit him, to suit the Treasury. So the, the number 11 became essentially um, the domestic government and, and Tony Blair became this freewheeling um, international statesman who takes us into wars that uh, turn out to be disastrous. So the, the New Labour project began um, in 94 and they were elected in 1997. And one of the things that Brown needs to own is the degree to which that resulted in the loss of Scotland and possibly the breaking up of the United Kingdom. Because for him to come along now and talk about our Scottish future is to ignore what he and others did in order to put rocket boosters under separatism. Um, they ran an election campaign in 1997 which was designed to uh, make leave no running room for the Tory party. So education, 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 tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, no tax rises for the first term of a Labour government. And they just kept saying that. 
And indeed, they actually kept to the same tight budget that Ken Clark had proposed in 1997, knowing that he himself wouldn't keep to it. Ken Clark said that all the spending totals were eye-wateringly tight and he would have broken them if they'd been re-elected. So the, 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 the Tory party wouldn't have kept to the budget that the Tory party proposed, but Labour did. Uh, so they, they actually left people who were on the, the, the centre-left and the, and the progressive side of politics. They left them with no good reason to vote um, Labour in 2001, and that was exactly what happened. The vote went off a cliff. Turnout fell from 71.2% to 59%. And when the, I think the Electoral Commission surveyed voters and asked them why they hadn't voted, non-voters asked why they hadn't voted, they said voting makes no difference. So Labour were elected and then governed in a way that was calculated to just completely dismay um, people on the left of the political spectrum. Um, and then the second thing they did, of course, was they established a Scottish Parliament. Um, and they established it with an additional member system of voting, which was designed to just reward the Tories for supporting the Parliament. The Tory party um, knew that they would get enough votes to allow them to dole out regional seats to key insiders. So this became a, a really kind of a fancy, fancy dole, you know. The Tory party knew that they'd be able to just straightforwardly give £65,000 a year jobs to some key Tories, because uh, regardless of whether they couldn't win a seat, they would be first on the regional lists or second on the regional lists and they would get elected. So they established an additional member system that was designed to just basically give the Tories seats for nothing, seats for, for anybody they wanted to give a seat to. And it was designed to provide the same for the SNP, but to a lesser extent, because the assumption was that the Labour Party would win all the first-past-the-post constituencies. The trouble was they couldn't imagine what the combination of those two things together would be. You run for the centre in politics nationally. You spend money like a hard-right Tory government for four years between 1997 uh, and 2001. You establish a parliament which has got an electoral system which is designed to facilitate um, people standing on regional lists and you can't see where this is heading. You can't see the two things which are obvious to anybody else, which is you're leaving yourself open to the replacement of the Labour Party in the constituencies with another party, such as the SNP. And that can happen because the SNP are going to have a platform because they'll win in the regions in the short term. And of course, that's exactly what did happen. Um, in 2003, we had remarkably the election of six Scottish Socialist Party people, including Tommy Sheridan. So, and the Greens, I think, took seven. Uh, and the SNP got their usual slice. So you had a, 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 the, the, the triumph of the small parties in 2003. And then, of course, in 2007, uh, the dam broke, um, and uh, the, the SNP actually just narrowly became the largest party by one seat after Douglas Alexander and others had tried to game the electoral. Well, they, what, they, what they did was they allowed uh, a ballot paper to say Alex Salmond for first minister, um, and they encouraged people who were alienated from the Labour Party to vote SNP as a way of excluding the, the Greens and the SSP. And uh, and the net upshot of all that, the combination of those two things together um, meant that uh, people who were disillusioned um, in 2001 and didn't vote at all for the Labour Party, all those left-wing voters um, voted SNP or SSP in 2003. And they saw how effective that was. And what it meant was that in 2007, after Labour had scraped home in 2005 in the general election. Uh, in 2007, they voted for the SNP en masse and they became the government. And that set us up for 
four years of SNP government, 2011 success, and then of course um, the, the independence referendum. The truly remarkable thing about Gordon Brown and Tony Blair's wrecking of the union was how despite their every effort, the union almost survived, it was almost okay. Because in 2010, people forget that the Labour vote in Scotland actually went up. You know, the SNP had become the government in 2007. They governed fairly conservatively and moderately in the Senate with Alex Salmond as First Minister. They were therefore in a position to win heavily, an incredible victory in 2011. I think they took 69 seats. They actually won an absolute majority in a system designed to prevent it. So the, the SNP uh, were doing pretty sound job in terms of just administering, because Alex Salmon's not stupid. Um, he doesn't just appoint idiots in the way that Nicola Sturgeon does. So in, in 2010, despite all of that SNP administrative competence, the Labour Party's vote still went up in 2010 in Scotland. Uh, and the Labour Party nearly um, were in a position to form a multi-party coalition. Uh, or alternatively, at least persuade the Liberal Democrats to stay out of an agreement with the Tories and force the Tories to govern as a minority government. But because Gordon Brown had alienated um, so many people, he'd alienated the Liberal Democrats in particular, who demanded his head as the price of leaving, uh, the price of leaving the Tories in, uh, uh, or uh, or even joining Labour in a in a multi-party coalition. The Liberal Democrats said before they would consider a multi-party co uh, coalition, Gordon Brown would have to go. And what Gordon Brown did was he went to the palace before talks had failed, um, hadn't even considered doing what the Liberal Democrats asked in order to secure a non-Tory government, and went to the uh, the palace and resigned, leaving the uh, the country in limbo and leaving the Liberal Democrats to think, well, if, if, if you're actually prepared to be that irresponsible, we can justify joining the Tories and forming a coalition government. So the part that Labour has to play in this whole story um, is just uh, terrible, huge. Um, and uh, and Brown and, and people around him uh, were massive players in damaging the union and creating the rise of the, the SNP. Um, people like George Roberts, I think it was, say, saying that devolution would kill nationalism stone dead. What a stupid thing to say. You know, I mean, you could say it's all to play for. We'll have to see how this pans out. You could do what they should have done at the start which is to create a single transferable vote system of election that would have destroyed the internal party unity of any party winning a majority. It would have created multi-party coalitions, it would have allowed the parliament to be truly representative, and it would have prevented um, any party doing what Nicola Sturgeon has done uh, since 2014. But of course, they didn't want that because they wanted a Labour Party in coalition with the Liberal Democrats and a Labour Party under um, central party control. The whole point of the electoral system in the Scottish Parliament was to prevent the Gleska councillors being able to do what they wanted. First past the post, it was thought, would result in a parliament full of Labour guys who can't get selection for MP jobs, and they would be a problem because they would make the national government look bad. So the assumption was that the additional member system would have a leavening of Liberal Democrats in coalition with Labour. And it resulted in, for example, spats between Jack McConnell and Alistair Campbell, when they introduced foundation hospitals in uh, in England, they wanted that policy mirrored in Scotland, and Jack McConnell said that's just not going to happen. And Alastair Campbell briefed the papers saying um, the government of the United Kingdom is in Westminster and we would expect the Scottish government to comply. Uh, and the Scottish government just basically said no. But, uh, but what they were aiming at was this um, Holyrood Parliament um, that wouldn't be uh, the kind of 
multi-party anarchic Scandinavian um, parliament that would prevent the kind of iron control that Nicola Sturgeon has exercised uh, in order to advance an agenda. Um, so they, 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 they weren't going to have um, what it should have been because they assumed that they would always be in a position to benefit from what they created. So they, they created an electoral system and a parliament that lent itself to iron control because if you can put people in a safe seat, um, they'll pretty much do what they need to do to keep that safe seat. It never occurred to the Labour Party that the people in a position to put you in a safe seat would be Nicola Sturgeon and others. Um, they didn't think, I'm sitting in Cathcart right now, uh, no one ever thought that it would be a question of just uh, uh, giving James Dornan a safe seat in Cathcart and then Dornan, when you tell him to jump, he'll say how high. Nobody imagined that world, but of course if they did any sense at all, they could have thought it through. And if they'd, if they'd opted for half a loaf early on, then we wouldn't be in the position we're in because the parliament from the get-go would have been full of independent people with independent minds and it would never have been the case that you could have had the kind of control the SNP exercised over its candidates. So Brown, as I say, fancies himself as a deep thinker, but he and others didn't have the wit to think through how this uh, Holyrood Assembly, in conjunction with um, a tight um, fiscal policy, would, would play out. They couldn't see that the combination of those two things, a hugely disgruntled Scotland and a new parliament to play with, they couldn't see how those two things would, would come together and produce the, the whirlwind that they produced. On this business about broad agreement on things like liberty and equality across the United Kingdom, one of the classic questions in analytical political theory, which is a subject I studied uh, at university, is are liberty and equality compatible? And uh, the answer is only if you think equality of opportunity is uh, is equality, because you can't you can't really have substantive equality. You can't if you, if if you uh, I don't want to become biblical, but if you if you handed out some uh, money and uh, and asked people to do something with it, uh, very quickly some would make it multiply and some would lose the lot. So it's very hard to maintain actual equality if you're prepared to tolerate um, freedom of choice. Uh, because people will make choices that are wise or foolish or just unlucky um, and therefore you'll get lots of inequality. So th th this business about agreeing on values, um, it's, it's very superficial because when you ask people questions like, you know, how important do you think is equality? Um, how important do you think is liberty? They're not honour students in an analytical political theory course. So you, they're never going to interpret the questions in a way. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing that bedevils social science, which is what construction does the person answering the question place in the question? And people ask the question about liberty and equality are never going to interpret it in a way that um, somebody who'd really thought about the incompatibility would interpret it. Um, and uh, as I say, other things as well about Gordon Brown's survey, like, for example, the, the slightly greater progressiveness uh, among Scots Scotland's got lower median income than uh, the southwest, uh, southeast, sorry, of, of England. Uh, the southwest of England and the Midlands and some parts of the north and Scotland and Wales uh, have got markedly lower um, median income. People talk about Scotland's fiscal deficit. There's a fiscal deficit across nearly all of the English regions. Uh, apart from uh, uh, London uh, and the east of England, uh, the, the rest of the country is, is receiving fiscal transfers. So when, when people talk about Scotland being more left-leaning, well, you know, that doesn't necessarily signal uh, a willingness to pay money over to help others less fortunate than oneself. It might just mean that in the thousand people you question in Scotland, more and more of them are net recipients. We've got £2,000 per head higher spending in Scotland 
than in England. So it's not difficult to see why people would be more progressive. Uh, because when if, I, if I'm, a, if I'm a, a, a recipient of free jam and somebody asks me, how do you feel about the, the distribution of free jam? I've got a very different view than, than somebody who finds half their jam being taken. So it's not difficult to see why a Scottish population that is seeded with people who are the beneficiaries of an average £2,000 per head greater spend, it's not difficult to see why they would be in favour of more progressive values um, because they, uh, they're the, the, the beneficiaries of the, the supposed greater values. Uh, they're not actually voting for, for more redistribution from themselves. They're voting for more redistribution to themselves. As to the poll tax, again, speaking of somebody in the centre-right, it's just so depressing that... Um, you can't have a serious discussion about the poll tax. The poll tax was a great policy. And if you're working for the Herald or the Daily Record and I ever stand for election again, you can take that quote straight out of context and say, Craig Ross says the poll tax was a great policy. And if you do that, you're a moron and you're not serving the democracy and you should be thoroughly ashamed of yourself and there's nothing I can do about it. The poll tax was a great policy because 80% of funding for local authorities, like, for example, Glasgow, comes from central government. And the top 1% of income taxpayers pay 33% of our income tax. What the poll tax did was it forced people to take seriously the spending decisions made by local authorities. The problem with the poll tax was, because if you think about it logically, splitting up um, £4 in every 20 evenly is not you know, terribly unfair. If, uh, if I pay £16 towards a meal and the meal costs 20 and we then split the remaining £4 so that I pay 18 in total and you spend 2 you pay 2 um, That's not terribly unfair. And if you then have a second rule which says if you spend more than 20 you'll divide that evenly as well. So if you vote to spend 30 in total, you'll have to spend 7 You'll have to pay 5 for the, for the extra 10 That was what the poll tax did. There were two problems with the poll tax. One, the block grants weren't high enough. So the supposed overspending councils weren't really overspending. So people weren't really voting for a ridiculously expensive meal and then rightly being made to pay for half the cost. What was actually happening was the, the £20 uh, wasn't enough to buy a meal and therefore people were compelled to spend more than that. Councils were compelled to spend more than that. So that was the first problem. And the second problem was prices are sticky. So what happened was landlords who were paying the rates and had incorporated the price of the rates into the rent they were charging their tenants, they just pocketed the, the, the money when the rates were no longer payable. So if you were renting out bed sets uh, in the West End of Glasgow and the price of a bed set was £150 a month in 1989 uh, because you were paying £3,000 a year in rates, you can be absolutely certain that when the, you didn't have to pay £3,000 in rates and the tenants had to pay £25 a month in poll tax, or it would be less than that, it would be yeah, £20. When the tenants had to pay £20 a month in poll tax, you didn't reduce their rent, you just pocketed the money. Free market theory tells you that rent should become cheaper, but free market theory also tells you that prices for some things, like for example labour and rental property, uh, the price tends to be very sticky. The market price doesn't move very quickly in the way that it does, for example, for beer or similar things. So the poll tax was a great policy, but there were two things in it which were completely stupid, which were low block grants and no rent reductions for people renting property where the rates had previously been incorporated into the rent. If they'd done those two things, the poll tax would have worked like magic. But people objected to the poll tax in principle because it meant everyone paying an equal 
uh, price. Neatly forgetting, of course, that everyone paid an equal price when it came to any given size of property. The rates depended on the size of your property, the rateable value of your property. It didn't depend on your wages. People forget that, you know, paying for a passport is a poll tax. People forget that the BBC licence fee is a poll tax. It's flat rated as well. So the, the poll tax, this great divisive issue that has rumbled on for uh, the, uh, the, the 30 years plus that it's, since, since it was implemented, um, in actual fact, isn't what people think it is. And nobody is prepared to think it through and listen to you when you try to defend it and suggest that it was a good policy, albeit a flawed policy. The idea that knowledge of shared values will nix independence, well, it might nix independence, but I wonder whether it'll nix, uh, whether it'll reduce or end um, SNP voting. Because one of the things that Gordon Brown and others um, don't spend enough time contemplating is the difference between support for independence and support for the SNP. The SNP have been very cute at policies, uh, implementing policies that suit the people who do understand Scotland's fiscal deficit and do understand that we do receive £2,000 per head more than we uh, would expect if we were living in England. Um, the Naomi Eisenstadt, their poverty czar, drew to their attention this when she looked at their policies. Things like, for example, a freezing council tax or free personal care for the elderly or subsidies for relatively prosperous people because folk who are too poor um, to afford uh, to pay for personal care or to lose houses because the house gets seized to pay for personal care, um, they get it paid for anyway. Um, if you're a, a poorer uh, person, your council tax is going to get paid by council tax benefit, some or all of it. So, or free university tuition. Working class kids go to the FE colleges, middle class kids go to university. So free university tuition is a, is a classic policy that favours the middle class. Big increases in wages. Uh, I was a college lecturer and none of us could have got another job if we'd had to with the same holidays when we were getting paid £37,500. The SNP decided to pay us £41,500 for no reason that I could understand. And then having done that, they got strikes uh, threatened from the teachers. So they had to raise the teachers' wages as well. We got us in a situation where college lecturers with no teacher training qualifications um, and an HNC were getting paid more money than school teachers who had a degree and a diploma in education. And of course, that could not stand. So they ended up having to raise the wages of all of us. They still pay cops the same money, despite the fact that um, in England, they, could, they pay less and find they've got loads of willing candidates. So the SNP spends money uh, not in helping the poor and the dispossessed, but in helping the kind of um, you know, middle-class folk who understand how the system works and uh, will respond positively to what amount to electoral bribes. So if we, if we become clear about our shared values, um, it might actually do something to uh, reduce support for independence. But I doubt whether it'll support, reduce support for the SNP because the SNP's support consists of people who believe they'll be greatly liberated by independence, ordinary working folk, sometimes in very hard circumstances who don't understand the facts. And the SNP's other slice of support is the middle classes who understand perfectly well and mean to retain their £50,000-plus job in their local authority, doing perhaps not very much. A lot of ordinary folk really don't understand how Scotland works. They don't understand just how many people are doing very, very well from the present setup. Uh, and those are the people who receive uh, the SNP's largesse. The reason why college lecturers like me got a massive pay rise that wasn't needed to retain our services is precisely because college lecturers are the kind of people who um, will vote SNP for rationally self-interested reasons. And in some cases, and there's no easy way to say this, 
will end up saying pro SNP things to the kids that they encounter because they're getting paid well um, by the by the state. How many uh, ordinary folk do you think are cognizant of what Mark Blythe, the SNP's economic advisor? He doesn't actually have a, an economics degree, he's got a PhD in politics like me. But Mark Blythe has suggested that uh, leaving the UK would be orders of magnitude a bigger hit to the Scottish economy than Brexit. He's also um, suggested that the idea will just become Denmark is nonsense. It took Denmark 600 years to become Denmark. How many ordinary folk are aware of uh, Mark Blythe saying that? How many are aware of uh, Andrew Wilson, the SNP's own Growth Commission person, saying essentially the same thing? There would be massive, horrific austerity for a long period of time. Alison Thulis is responding in the Herald today over an Institute for Government report that says the same thing. Scotland would be looking at a minimum of £8.5 billion worth of cuts. And that's before you talk about the impact of a border at Berwick and what that would do to business. It's also before you consider the difference between £8.5 billion in tax rises or £8.5 billion in cuts. Because um, all of the economic data suggests that cuts have a much bigger impact. Um, I, uh, uh, sorry, I'll say that again. Um, the, the, if you try to borrow money um, and to continue spending, that becomes quickly impossible. Um, if you impose tax rises in order to meet existing spending commitments, uh, you'll probably discover that you're doing something um, that the international markets not only won't value, but the, um, the economy will suffer from. To put it bluntly, um, people tend to borrow money to pay for welfare benefits, not for bridges and roads. So across all societies, um, and it matters, this is less true in developing societies with smaller welfare states, but across all societies, organisations like the IMF and the World Bank will tell you that uh, tax rises are far more uh, damaging for growth, far more damaging for the wider economy, ultimately far more damaging for your ability to pay welfare um, than cuts are. You can cut spending programmes and not see growth fall that much, particularly, to be honest and, and to sound hard-faced about it, if you cut welfare benefits and pensions rather than education. Um, but if you, if you hike taxes to continue paying welfare benefits, it really, really damages your society in the long run because your ability to even maintain those welfare payments, even with the tax rises, um, starts to fall because um, you disincentivise work, you disincentivise skilled work, you disincentivise investment, uh, you encourage people to try and get themselves into the category of net recipient. So in a, a whole range of ways that people on the left don't like acknowledging, but people on the right think are impossible to ignore, um, you start to affect your wider society. So the, the article in the Herald today says we're talking about £8.5 in cuts or tax rises. Uh, in actual fact, what you would discover in the long run if you went for the tax rises is that you'd get into either a death spiral um, or you'd be, um, and, and therefore you'd have to cut the spending programmes, um, or you'd be uh, at the very least saddled with low growth, uh, below trend for a long, long time. Stephen Daisley, who's very good at writing for an audience, um, drew to everyone's attention something that Nicola Sturgeon had said, I think, in 2015, that a lot of people miss. She was asked the question, how would you feel if you don't achieve Scottish independence? And uh, she sort of said, well, you know, it would be one of those things, I would regret it, I would be disappointed, but, you know, life moves on and these things happen. And uh, this is one of the things that folk really ignore um, about uh, Nicola Sturgeon's government as opposed to Alex Salmond's government, because, of course, Salmond has established ALBA. And at their conference last week, he, uh, he suggested that uh, 
the SNP's domestic record is poor and their commitment to independence is slim. Uh, and a lot of people have come to that conclusion. Uh, Gordon Brown is worrying about uh, the possibility of the United Kingdom falling apart. Um, Alex Salmond is worried about the possibility of the United Kingdom not falling apart. And of course, reasonable people can differ as to whether um, Nicola Sturgeon's uh, commitment to independence and an early referendum in 2023 of some sort, they can, they can, reasonable people can differ as to how sincere it is. But, uh, but there's at least a suggestion um, that maybe she's committed to a, a failed referendum in 2023 precisely to meet the need for some kind of referendum without actually doing anything that might actually result in Scottish independence. And as I say, I, I don't know how cynical I am. I, I, I don't know. Um, some, on, on, any, on any given day, I can change my mind. But it's an interesting speculation that um, the reason why Nicola Sturgeon told the conference last week that uh, she's committed to a, an independence referendum in 2023 come hellfire or high water is precisely because she's already anticipated that, as happened, the, the, the Westminster government would, re would reject uh, the possibility of a Section 30 order and a proper referendum, and therefore she can safely hold an improper referendum, satisfy the activists, uh, and not actually do anything to uh, jeopardise the, the position that she and others around her hold. Now, McQuillan suggests an equivalence between leaving the EU and leaving the UK. So in other words, it's understandable um, why the Scots would want to leave the UK uh, because they see the UK as pernicious in exactly the same way that the EU uh, was thought by uh, a majority in the UK, and in particular in England, to be pernicious. Now, one of the things that's worth noting is that there's a really strong argument that um, the EU was failing the UK. Um, the EU did very little to advance a single market in services. And of course, the UK has got a huge trade deficit with the EU in, in goods and a, and a surplus in services. And the UK is a massively service-oriented economy. So we were quite a heavy net contributor um, to the EU. And people say things like, you know, you, you're a much more powerful player as part of the EU, neatly forgetting that if we're 1 in 28, but we chip in, you know, perhaps 30% or 25% of the total resource, then having a say as 1, in 20, 1 of 28, when we're contributing with France and Germany, nearly all the resource, does not entail um, great influence. Uh, because we're distinctive, we've got distinctive interests. We're an unusual economy, as I say, more service-oriented. And we've also got links with the rest of the world, which we severed in 1973, or at the very least damaged. Um, we, we used to receive a huge amount of uh, agricultural product from Australia and New Zealand, and that all was very greatly reduced uh, after we joined the EU. So the, 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 the case for, and I don't, want to, I don't want to rehearse the case for Brexit, but the case for Brexit wasn't based on nothing. The economic case for leaving the UK is essentially based on nothing. It's based on platitudes and bromides about being a dynamic economy, a smaller economy, a more responsive economy, a successful economy, an economy that values the contribution of everyone, that looks to the future and the new technologies in which the future will be built, that aims to be a world leader in green technologies. And that's just, just all nonsense. Um, Lorna Slater uh, will happily talk like that until the cows come home, or I suppose um, she'd prefer uh, something other than cows, given the amount of methane that they produce. But the, 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 the plan for a, a future Scottish um, economy that will be superior to the one we have right now is predicated 
um, on uh, a whole load of slogans, which even Andrew Wilson in his growth report um, couldn't stand up when questioned at the most superficial level. Gordon Brewer um, questioned him and pointed out that all he'd found was a correlation between small countries and growth. You could equally well find a correlation between, for example, countries in Northern Europe and growth, because you know a lot of the ones in Southern Europe, like Greece, for example, had low growth. So Wilson's report begins with the desire for independence and then tries to make the facts fit. And the same holds true for all the other things that are said for independence in terms of, for example, renewables. We've just seen another company trying to manufacture renewables go bust. There's no reason whatsoever um, why we would be a world leader uh, in renewables compared to any other country. The fact that we've got a lot of tidal um, power doesn't mean we're going to be any good at manufacturing the mach machines that might capture it. There was an article in the Herald last week uh, an Italian uh, spokesperson for a company owned by the Italian government uh, talking about a hydrogen transformation um, for the North Sea. So use the existing technology in the North Sea to manufacture hydrogen. And of course, if you read the article and you actually look at what's being said, there's no reason to suppose, and indeed the author, the, the spokesperson for the Italian uh, company, specifically says that what you're talking about is meeting Scotland's energy needs through existing infrastructure. But that what you're talking about as a technology would allow England to meet its needs, France to meet its needs, Greece to meet its needs, and every other country to meet its needs. If you read what the article actually says, what it's saying is that hydrogen is going to be the wave of the future, and it's going to involve every country being energy independent very quickly. But of course, the SNP's case for independence involves selling energy to other places. And we've got people in the SNP and the wider independence movement trumpeting the possibility of being as leader in renewables and how the, the North Sea could be uh, reinvented as a, as a hydrogen producer. And if you actually look just at the article they're relying on, it says the exact opposite. It says that everybody will be a hydrogen producer and therefore the international market for energy um, will collapse because it's going to be easy to manufacture energy-dense hydrogen, which will you know, be a substitute for absolutely everything, including uh, the kind of uses like jet fuel. Jet fuel, you need, you need energy density um, in, a, in a jet in the way that you don't need it in a Tesla car. Uh, and that's why you know kerosene was always going to be necessary for planes. Once you can start using hydrogen, even that becomes less of a problem. Uh, and as I say, the, the, the economic arguments for independence uh, from the UK begin with the desire for independence from the UK and then don't really move from it. The people who are making the arguments pick up whatever they need um, like a thug in a fight, picking up whatever weapon they can find. Uh, but none of it's been thought through, um, and none of it withstands too much uh, analysis. As to the idea that the, the, the Westminster government has been provocative on the woke agenda, well, you can see what McQuillan is driving at. Uh, you can see that uh, with the Greens in government and the Gender Recognition Act being forced through the Scottish Parliament uh, and the parliamentary estate, asking the, the Westminster government to ban protesters from the state because you've got women won't wished turning up outside the parliament and protesting the GRA. You can see what McQuillan is, is driving at, but um, it's not obvious that the Johnson government um, is, uh, is deliberately trying to provoke um, the SNP. It's that the Johnson government is trying to get elected and it knows that uh, Middle England is, is socially more conservative than, uh, than, and indeed Middle Scotland is socially more conservative um, than the people around Nicola Sturgeon are. Uh, and for perfectly understandable self-interested reasons, no politician facing an election wants to adopt the platform that Nicola Sturgeon and a handful of other people around her adopt. 
She can afford to do that because of the slavish SNP voting that has uh, risen, arisen in Scotland over the last uh, decade or so. But uh, I don't think it's a provocation to um, look to uh, Middle England's expectations when it comes to things like, for example, um, allowing small children uh, to identify their gender at school and, uh, and their parents to know nothing of it, um, or be um, subject to critical race theory lessons uh, and made to understand their white privilege and made to understand their white skin as being distinctive when they haven't thought about it for two seconds. You know, if I was a parent, if I was a parent in a school with loads of kids, um, who some of whom were black, uh, some of whom were white, uh, and, you know, every ethnic group represented, and my kid came home suddenly aware of ethnicity in a way that he hadn't been aware before or she hadn't been aware before, I would be incredibly bloody angry. Um, you know, the, the kids um, really don't, don't bother their backside about these kind of things until somebody tells them to bother about it. Um, and as I say, I don't think the Westminster government is looking to provoke anybody. Uh, quite the opposite. They're trying to avoid ordinary people being provoked. Just two more things um, before I wind up. The idea that um, spending money over the heads of the SNP is again a, a provocation. What is often missed is the extent to which the Westminster government has allowed itself to be ill-used by the SNP and has allowed itself to be um, uh, disempowered uh, through decisions um, when a court challenge earlier would have been wise. So, for example, people forget that energy policy is reserved to the UK and uh, planning decisions are devolved. But you cannot exercise a devolved function in a way that frustrates the exercise of reserve function. But of course, the SNP have done this. They ended up banning, they ended up banning uh, fracking in Scotland and then argued in the quarter session that it wasn't really a ban because Scottish ministers could always choose to um, approve a license application despite the fact that they'd sworn on a stack of Bibles that they'd reject every single application. And if I recall correctly, Lord Pentland uh, in the quarter session accepted that argument. A truly remarkable, truly remarkable. A basic element of law and natural justice is that the arbiter has to listen attentively to your arguments and not reach a decision before the arguments have been made. And yet Lord Pentland argued that despite the fact that SNP policy was to reject every single uh, application for a fracking licence, um, it was not in actual fact any real policy because it was always possible for the ministers in the absence of legislation to approve uh, a fracking licence. <sighs> Quite a remarkable judgment. But anyway, energy policy is reserved um, and you cannot use planning law to frustrate energy policy. But the UK would never in a million years contemplate uh, building a nuclear reactor in Scotland against Scottish Parliament opposition because uh, it would excite such uh, you know, reaction from the, from the separatists. And the trouble is, feeding people these kinds of buns um, is OK as long as you don't ever run out of buns or decide that you can't afford to pay any more um, Dane geld, or in this case, um, nat geld, um, nat bun, I suppose, if you're feeding a nationalist buns. So the, so the Westminster government continually backs down when it comes to uh, squeak issues. Um, so, for, for example, a referendum. You could argue quite convincingly in court that the money you'll spend in holding a referendum, if it's not actually a Section 30 order referendum, uh, is not within the competence of the Parliament. You could try that, but they won't. They'll, they'll allow an opinion poll to take place precisely because they don't want the fight. And finally, 
And finally, the idea that we, as, as McQuillan suggests, would have to tolerate um, Tory governments as the price of being in a union with people who are essentially kin to us, it breaks my heart, it really does. The reason why we have endless Tory governments, the reason why the 2015 election went the way it went, is precisely because the SNP helped to engineer Tory victories. This, this, it, it breaks my heart that this has to be said, and it has to be said so many times. In 2015, Nicola Sturgeon said, and she said it with a little smile on her face, designed to be provocative, if you, uh, if you hold the balance, you hold the power. Right? So she said that about the possibility of a Labour-SNP coalition. And Alex Salmond, of course, there was a video released showing Alex Salmond saying, you don't have to worry about Ed Balls' budget because I'll be writing Ed Balls' budget, the Labour Chancellor. I'll be writing Ed Balls' budget. Now, of course, that was designed to make folk in the north of England vote Tory. No reasonable person could stand the idea of a Labour government held hostage by the SNP Already it's the case that if you're, if you're in the north of England, you're looking at a relatively poorer part of the country with £2,000 per head less spending than the Scots get. That's what you're already tholing in Newcastle, in Liverpool, in Leeds, in Manchester and in other places. You're getting two grand less than the Scots get. And your voters tolerate that for the sake of having a United Kingdom. And then Nicola Sturgeon says, well, if you hold the balance, you hold the power. What impact do you think that has on voters in the north of England. Of course it provokes them. And it makes them feel completely dismayed at the prospect of a Labour government. And it's designed to do so. And that's why you end up with a Tory government. The SNP presents itself as a solution to a problem it creates. If the SNP only ran candidates for the Hollywood and local authority elections, or if the SNP was a pressure group putting pressure on all the parties and trying to advance the cause of independence, you would have Labour governments regularly. And if it wasn't a Labour government, it would be a Tory government far, far to the left of the one you get otherwise. The SNP facilitates right-wing Tory governments because they deny Labour the 45 or 50 seats they would ordinarily win in Scotland and they prevent the Labour Party winning in the North of England for fear of an SNP Labour coalition. Tory governments are manufactured by the SNP. But anyway, uh, in this, uh, as in so much else, there's not a whole lot it seems you can do. So uh, I'll try not to become too animated and uh, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to Gordon Brown's next attempt to convince ordinary folk that uh, the, the union is to their benefit. Because if ordinary folk thought for two seconds about the real issues, um, Scotland was a hard place to make a living long before we joined the union, before 1707. Scotland has got very little in the way of productive land. Uh, Scotland was the first industrial nation. The reason why we're not Norway today is precisely because we weren't Norway when Norway was uh, agrarian. Uh, we've, we've had a massive legacy of post-industrial uh, health problems and other problems um, to deal with. And when you talk to ordinary folk and you say, do you not think it might be relevant that we were the great industrial power, that Glasgow was the second city of the empire? And because of the incredible global changes that have taken place um, as, as manufacturing has moved, uh, to the Far East and other places that we would suffer quite badly in a way that perhaps more agricultural and lesser industrial countries like Denmark or Norway uh, didn't because, you know, there's a reason why Scotty the engineer is a Scot in Star Trek. It's because some ridiculous percentage of the world's ships were made in the Clyde. 
So do you ever think that maybe part of the reason why we've got the problems we've got has got nothing to do with English? It's precisely because we were successful in a dying trade. And if you're successful in a dying trade, you're going to have problems moving to the next thing. Particularly if you've got politicians who tell you that the reason why you had problems was because some bad person in London did it to you. Uh, and the only solution to your problems is a political solution. That might contribute to further problems, don't you think? But, uh, but as I say, um, it's very, very hard to go around the electorate one at a time. Peace.